welcome to episode 43 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode, we'll be kicking off with scientists versus clergymen in novels. And in the second half, we will be comparing As It Was by Helen Thomas to First of the Wind for France by H.E. Bates, two books that we're realising have more or less nothing in common, but we, <laughs> we will find things and we will make a convincing argument about it. Yes, we will. <laughs> Um, jury's out on that. Uh, before, oh, I should say, I'm going to try not to mumble in this episode because we have had feedback that Simon mumbles. <laughs> um, Simon. In a review that was otherwise very nice, so it was put very politely. And we still got three out of five stars, just, presumably just for what Rachel says. <laughs> yeah, those are for me. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for dragging our rating down. I do talk very fast. I will try and talk slower, but when I, see, it's not, I'm talking so fast, I'm panicking. Anyway. <laughs> Rachel, how are Just you? Because you're so passionate. So passionate. Um, so much to say. <laughs> yeah, we have. We both have. But you know, we'll try and say it slower. Yeah. Um, I'm very well, thank you. I've just been in Cornwall for the week, um, which is wonderful. I've recently got into watching Poldark, which um, for anyone not watching, you need to watch. Um, it's set in 18th century Cornwall amongst the tin mining community, which sounds boring, but it's amazing. And um, it's based on a series of novels that were written between like the, thir- the 40s and the 70s, maybe, by a guy called Winston Graham. I haven't read the books, um, but the, I've, I've heard they're very good, but there's like 12 of them. And, you know, when you just think, I can't even <laughs> my begin. Mom, my mum likes them. She had all the TV time editions from the previous TV series. Yeah. My sister's got all of those from her mother-in-law, um, but she, I don't think she made it past the first one. But I, so I started watching. I hadn't. I'd, it started about three years ago on t- on BBC, um, and I, but I hadn't started watching it. I think it was on at the same time as Downton Abbey or something, and it was just too much, you know. And um, <laughs> but I couldn't handle two period dramas at the same yeah, time. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. And then um, my friend at work recently said to me, you know, I can't believe you haven't you haven't seen Poldark. And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, it's everything. It's everything you'd love. I was like, oh, okay. So um, I started the first series is on Netflix. I started watching and, you know, three o'clock in the morning, uh, I finished series one. <laughs> Couldn't wow. stop. It was addictive, addictive. Um, so now I've watched the entire first and second series and the third series is currently airing on BBC. It's amazing. And I thought, why not go to Cornwall and see where it's all done? So um, is that the reason for the trip? Pretty much, Simon, Sorry, yes. I'll, t- I'll take the judgmental tone out of my voice. Was that the reason for the trip? <laughs> that, that, was, that was worse, if anything. Carry on. <laughs> also, you know, just wanted to see lovely Cornwall, hmm. which I haven't seen since I was a child. And, um, yeah, it was wonderful. We were staying right by the tin mines where they film the series. Obviously, they have to use CGI in the series because the tin mines are ruins now. But um, that was really cool. And we went to a few of the beaches that are there. We also saw lots of other things as well. But, um, yeah, it was really amazing and really great to kind of understand more about the 18th century and what life would have been like for people. Because I don't really know, because I'm more of a 19th century person, I don't really know a lot about the 18th century. So I found it really interesting. And Cornwall was beautiful and sunny for us, though not sunny for others. While we were there, there was very bad flooding in oh some gosh. parts. Okay. But we dodged it all. It was bright sunshine for us. It's so a big county. Yeah. It is a big county. So um, that's me. That was Cornwall. Had a great time. Did you do much reading? I didn't do any reading um, because I was just too busy having fun. But um, I am currently halfway through a book that's going to sound random, but there is a reason for me reading it. Um, <laughs> it's nonfiction. It's called The Brother Gardeners by Andrea Wolfe. 
The subtitle of the book is Botany, Empire and the Birth of an Obsession, which, as you'll know, Simon, I do have a wide interest in botanical history. And um, this book is all about how plants were first brought to England in like the 16th and 17th centuries and 18th centuries. Um, and it's really, really interesting about a group of men who basically are the reason why England has uh, so many plants from other countries. Lord. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> it doesn't sound at all interesting, but I'm glad that you're enjoying it. Yeah, <laughs> it is really interesting. Sorry. And I just, on a similar note, I just finished a fiction book from Darlene, who gave it to me when she came over for her visit last, was it last weekend? No, two weeks ago. Hmm. Uh, he blogs at Cozy Books, for those of you who don't know Darlene. He's lovely. She's from Canada. And um, she gave me The Lost Garden by Helen Humphreys. She's a Canadian author. And it's a book all about um, a woman who gets sent to uh, to look after a garden in the Devon countryside during World War Two. She's part of a land army and she has to um, she's from the British sent from the Royal Horticultural Society to basically tell them how to grow vegetables and stuff. Um, and she's got various. Uh, past issues and she goes down there and also staying at the estate are a bunch of land girls and also some Canadian soldiers and it's about the relationships between them and um, also how she kind of discovers herself as she discovers this secret garden that's sort of hidden away it's really nice it's a lovely story I'm glad is is that a new book no I think it's probably about 10 years old but it's lovely I really really enjoyed it and it's really short as well but I found it really moving really beautifully written Hmm. Well, we've managed to find a day to record in between holidays because I'm going to France tomorrow, um, as you know, south of the Loire Valley, um, and I've yet to plan the books I'm going to take with me. Um, I, I, f- I feel like I should take something French, but I'm not sure there's anything French I particularly want to read at the moment. Have you read The Chateau? Oh, Why? I started it and I didn't finish it. Um, by William Maxwell, yes. I, yeah. I, a long time ago, I read the first hundred pages, and I was enjoying it, but it was because I read so many books at once, I just, you know, that one fell to the bottom of the pile. So I would have to start again. Maybe, mm, that could work. I don't know if it's here or if it's in Somerset. Hmm. Aye. Otherwise, um, I'm reading so many books at the moment, I should probably take some of them, but... Um, but I, I don't know how you do that, I really don't. Well, someone has suggested this for a future yeah. episode, so we might talk about it next time. But um, one of the books I'm reading, um, as you may remember, dear listener and dear Rachel, that we recently discussed books versus trains. Sorry, boats versus trains. <laughs> <laughs> books versus trains would be a quicker discussion. <laughs> um, and along with the, the plaudits and, and applause for the choice of topic, of course, <laughs> somebody um, <laughs> commented in fact, David Hawkes. Uh, thank you, David commented on the blog post with various suggestions, including The Boat by L.P. Hartley, which ah. I owned and had not read, but I have now started that after his recommendation, and I'm really enjoying it. It's fun. Is it literally all on a boat? None of it so far is on a boat. Ah. <laughs> um, so it's about, I can't remember his name, but about a man who uh, has taken a, a house, who's renting it furnished in this village community, and the reason he wanted it is because it has... a a lake or river, no, a river nearby that he buys a boat for. He's got a little boathouse and he puts the boat in. Um, and there's a big kerfuffle in the, in the local area about whether or not he's allowed to use the boat because it turns out it might disrupt the fishing rights, <laughs> which sounds very tedious, but is actually, so that's sort of a thread that goes through various other community things. And he's writing to these two women. He's got issues with them, etc. Um, but it's a nice sort of idea that that boat 
which he's not got into and we've not seen, <laughs> we just heard about, is sort of pulling the whole narrative together because it's his main way of engaging with the new the people in this village where he's the new person. And it's very funny, like the book's very funny, mostly so far funny because it's got two hilariously awful servants, uh, one a maid and a cook, in fact, um, who are forever taking offence and threatening to resign. I'm sure it's not at all progressive <laughs> in that way, but but he writes... He writes very amusingly. I've only read The Go-Between before, so it's fun to read more of his stuff. Have you read anything else by him? No, I haven't. And I should. I think I'm... Because I love The Go-Between so much, I don't want to read something else in case I don't like it as much, but... Yeah, John Murray republished quite a few a few years ago. In fact, they very kindly sent all of them to me, and I read none of them. But but that means they're there. So they did A Perfect Woman, maybe? And then something else. So books I've never heard of, but um, but he's a very fine writer. I'm enjoying it. Hmm. What else am I reading? I'm also reading Diana Athill's memoir, one of them called Instead of a Letter. That's quite fun. Although it's got too many similarities with As It Was, um, so I may well get them confused when we talk about it later. <laughs> yeah. Well, quite the cornucopia of different books. Well, quite. <laughs> Um, your love of botany is what is the reason that we're doing the first topic today, is it not, Rachel? It is, Simon, which is probably going to be an ill-advised suggestion. <laughs> um, I rather rashly suggested that we do... Um, well, I said, actually, I did scientists versus... What did I say? Well, so you I said scientists in novels, and then I asked on Twitter if anyone had any idea what we could do up against this. My friend Karina said, what about scientists in novels versus novelists in science? Which sounded lovely. And there's only a couple of days ago that I messaged you saying, what does this mean? <laughs> and then realised, in fact, we did not really know any novelists in science. Or at least I didn't. And um, we couldn't really think, yeah, what exactly, how we would make that work. So then did somebody else suggest clergy or did you? I think someone maybe said it on Twitter. I can't remember. Yeah. But so it, yeah. it seems like a sensible kind of, Suggestion, seeing as certainly if we're thinking about it from a 19th century perspective, um, which I might you know, not, but carry on. <laughs> which, which I very much am, <laughs> um, religion and science being two of the greatest debates of the age. And in the 19th century, certainly being a scientist and being a clergyman were not mutually exclusive. So, um, so I think, because I didn't want to pander to the whole science versus religion debate because it's such a, a silly one, because you can very much have both. But, um, yes. But, Having said that, they are, have both. They have been put up as two, two um, complementary, overlapping, antagonistic, whatever debates th- for several centuries. Yeah. So I think it's, it works yeah. well as a theme. We don't need to overanalyze it. Let's just <laughs> to no. see what we've come up with. Yes. So when I say scientists as well, just to clarify for people, um, we're not just talking about you know chemists or physicists or anything like that. It's it's basically anyone who is scientific in any way. And certainly in the 19th century, natural science was something that was that was practiced quite widely. So botany or minerals, geology, that kind of thing counts as well. It is ironically a I'm going to be using it. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Very nice. <laughs> uh, so the first thing I thought about when I thought of Vickers was the 19th century novel, or novel series, in fact, The Barchester Chronicles. Um, I've only read the first two um the Warden and Barchester Towers, both starring, starring, <laughs> both featuring uh, <laughs> Septimus Harding, who is a canon or something like that, in a cathedral town. Um, as um, Oh, novels by Anthony Trollope, I don't think I mentioned. But um, 
I think I've talked about him before. He's such a lovely guy. <laughs> so we see the minutiae of, of the clergy workings in that community. Um, and it's just really all about his, his moral quandaries um, and how he lives his life. And it, um, I don't think you have to be particularly interested in the clergy to appreciate the novel, but novels, but I think anti-trial can just make you interested in more or less anything. And so those are the ones, the first ones I think of um, when I thought of Vicar. Um, mm. Well, yeah, let's think of some more, some more Vicar novels or clergy novels before we do before we do scientists. But what was what was your first? What were your first thoughts? Well, my first thought when anyone talks of clergy is I always go to Austin really, and I think her depictions of clergymen are brilliant. Mm. Um, like people always focus on um, the kind of ridiculous ones, like Mr. Elton and Mr. Collins, mm. uh, Mr. Elton from Emma and Mr. Collins from um, Pride and Prejudice, but. Actually, I remember reading when I was at university, people saying, oh, well, you know, Jane Austen depicted the clergy as being ridiculous. Therefore, you know, she it shows that she wasn't particularly religious. I remember reading an essay on that. I thought that's ridiculous because you've got Henry Tilney in Northanger Abbey, who is um, a very upright person. who's going to become um, a clergyman. And I think he's probably the best example of a clergyman. It's someone who's actually a really good person through and through, because I know Edmund in um, Mansfield Park is going to become a clergyman, but his judgment is not particularly good uh, for many <laughs> we, reasons. Which managed to get some slang, slagging off of Mansfield Park into every episode. <laughs> yeah. But I like it much better now, though. Yes, of course. Um, I, I should have, say I that um, uh, my brother was one of the people who replied when I tweeted about could feel think of their favourite books with with vicars or scientists, and he just replied with "Big up Henry Tilney." So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean Henry Tilney is great, and I think um, Jane Austen's depiction of clergy is really interesting because it comes at a point in history when there was real um, antagonism towards the clergy, and the church was trying really hard to change because there were a lot of clergymen who were basically taking the Mickey and did hardly any work and were doing their best to mm. basically rig the system, um, bearing in mind that you got given a living by who you were connected to. It was all nepotism. Second there were sons, of, that sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. And there were lots of people that would have like four or five different parishes and um, get all the money from them and like maybe turn up once in a blue moon or not even live there at all. And they weren't serving their community. So I think Jane Austen, obviously being the daughter of a, of a rector herself, um, she kind of, I think there is an element in there of criticising people who did become clergymen for the wrong reasons or were kind of forced into becoming clergymen without having a particular faith or desire to do it. Um, so you do have those clergymen in her novels who are ridiculous, who are very arrogant and self-centred and seem to have no, that you don't ever see any element of um, faith about them at all in the novels, that, mm-hmm. like, especially, especially people like Mr. Outen and Mr. Collins. They're just out for what they can get, basically. Um, but with people like Henry Tilney and, and Edmund Bertram, you do see more of that kind of sense of them having a genuine calling and being good people. Um, so I think Jane Austen is really interesting to read because it helps you to understand a bit more about the situation of religion. Because I think too often people just blanket say, oh, well, everyone was religious in the 19th century and the 18th century. It's simply not true. Um and it's quite interesting to read that in those books, I think. Yeah, and Austen certainly doesn't single out the clergy as being the the, the only foolish or selfish people. Yeah, in the books. yeah they're, they're filled with people with basically, I mean, there's, there's noble and in, in, ignoble um, uh, soldiers and you know, mothers and everything. Basically, well, not, actually, there yeah. aren't really any good mothers, are there? But, um, not but really. yes, no, yes, no profession is 
um, in Violet and her. Um, I think there are, yeah, so there are some books, but not that many I could think of that really do focus in on the life of the vicar. Obviously, there is the Gilead trilogy by Marilyn oh, Robinson, yeah. Clang the Gilead Bell, if, you're, you know, if you've been waiting for it to be mentioned. Um, I can't imagine for a moment now that anyone who listens to this doesn't know what happens, but so I'll say extremely briefly that they're all about a Baptist minister, John Ames. Um, and like Septimus Harding, is just a, a, a beautifully moral and kind and lovely man um so they're uh pretty positive portraits um of clergy albeit you know nuanced and real people not just you know um sort of angel angelic halo whatever yeah. um the only other two that i could think of where the vicar was really central um were um as for me and my house which is by Mm. Sinclair Lewis or Upton Sinclair. Which one wrote us from here in my house? Oh, I don't know. Sinclair Ross, neither of the above. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I get that tri- trio mixed up constantly. Uh, Sinclair Ross. Um, and it's a novel that Thomas, um, who blogs at Hogglestock and uh, at the readers, uh, gave me, I think, certainly recommended, and I think gave. Um, which was about uh, a minister and his wife um, in sort of Dustville, nowhere, America. So um, it's, yeah, The Back of Beyond, quite a melancholy place. And the book, I, it was it was well written, but my goodness, it was bleak. Like, it, I find it quite hard to appreciate because everyone was miserable. Like, there was the constantly talking about how dusty the place was. And I think... Obviously, there are very hard lives in the world. There are people who are, are very unhappy. But I feel like almost all lives have at least an element of happiness or joy in them. Um, and I feel like that could have been included somewhere. Because in a novel, you can you don't have to... Um, you can choose what sort of life you're depicting. <laughs> so it just, it, was, it just felt a little too unnecessarily uh, bleak. And as did, in fact, the other one, which uh, my... I had lunch with my friends Lorna and Will today and talked about this, and they suggested, amongst other things, um, The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. Oh, yes. Um, have you read that one? I have read that one. Yeah, so about a minister in Congo. Um, and I I do like Barbara Kingsolver's writing, but I found that novel, um, I'm interested to hear what you think about it, ex- extremely irritating because he, the minister is such an ogre. And he's cruel to his wife and to his daughters. He's horrible to, to the uh, native inhabitants of the Congo. He's de- hypocritical. So I was thinking, that's fine. Some people are like that. But she seemed to me to be trying to make broader points about faith and about the church and about ministers and about missionaries based on his characters. Like, well, you can't just make him the worst possible version of, him, of a minister and then say, and then use that to draw conclusions more widely. It just felt yeah. cheap and, and easy and reductive as a novelist technique, or while still being a really well written and compelling novel. It does, that just really annoyed me. Yeah, no, I agree. I felt that it was kind of a bit of a low blow, really, the whole way through. Mm. Um, and I find that I tend to find that perhaps in more modern novels that feature religious people, those religious people are, aren't, or pe- either people who are religious or people who are ministers or vicars or whatever. They tend to be used to, to take a pot shot mm-hmm. at religion rather than being actually their role being central to the plot in some way. Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I, I read 
like you, obviously, more older books. And, and um, I think there, particularly when it's not just about a vicar, or, or the vicar's not the focal point, you're more likely to find them as part of the fabric of a society, and that mm. happens less now. So things like The Diary of Frenchal Lady has our vicar and our vicar's way, <laughs> um, names that I stole from my blog. Um, and I can't have written down any other examples of that, um, but... Lots of those sorts of domestic novels of the 20s and 30s and 40s will have a vicar who pops by. There's one in Frosted Morning by Richard yeah. Crompton. There's, you know, they're just there as, as focal characters. And in, and in rural communities, I think even, even to this day, people who don't go to church, um, probably still know who the vicar is because he'll be involved in the school or, you know, yeah. or, she, or she indeed. Um, where, or they'll, you know, the village fade or something. It's still in some ways, a, a notable figure in the community. I, I mean, I'm biased in this because I grew up in a vicarage, and that's and it felt <laughs> very focal to me. But, um, but I, as you say, I think modern novels when they treat clergy, or do, or just don't treat clergy particularly, unless they're there to be unpleasant, as far as I can tell, or you know, to yeah, yeah, be a, a it's, villain. It's really interesting, isn't it? And I think it shows a real shift in our society as well, certainly in British society, in that, as you say, most of the time in older novels, there will just be an incidental clergyman mm-hmm. who's just around because they were just around. Um, and they were much more a focal point of communities and, and a figure in people's lives. People would have known their local vicar, whether, mm-hmm. um, he would have been involved and he would have known the people. Uh, whereas nowadays, I mean, very few, certainly fewer than 50% of people in England and Wales and Northern Ireland, etc. UK, I should just say that. Um, <laughs> don't know what's happened to my brain today. Um, are, don't go to church. So the idea of writing about church life or the involvement of somebody, a figure from the church in everyday life, doesn't enter people's heads. And so we don't really have those figures um, in our novels. And I think, you know, there's so many books we could talk about where, um, you know, the there's loads of books from the 30s, for example, like The Rector's Daughter, The Vicar's Daughter, that are about... The um, Clergyman's Daughter. Yeah, all three. Yes. <laughs> all three of them. Like, all about um, children of clergymen, particularly daughters, tends to be written about quite a lot, and about how often um, their role is sort of marginalised in the community as they get older and are unmarried, etc. And that's really interesting as well. So it was obviously a kind of a known thing about clergymen, maybe that there was a kind of thing about clergymen's daughters, um, because it seems strange that there are so many books about that. I'm wondering whether there was a kind of uh, particular um, societal trend for daughters of clergy not to get married or something, I don't know. but Interesting, yeah. Or everybody knew a kind of vicar's daughter, spinster, you know, the spinster daughter of a vicar or something like that. I guess there was definitely a trend in general for one of the daughters to stay, stay unmarried and look after the parents. So yeah. Maybe it's just, I don't know if it's particularly big of families, but, um, well, I mean, Jane Austen didn't get married, so maybe that's... <laughs> there we are, or Cassandra, so there we go. But I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's very, in- I think, um, I think it's really interesting as well to read books with clergy in it because I feel you can kind of tell a lot about the author and their attitudes towards religion from their depiction of clergymen. Mm-hmm. And um, I I asked, as I say, on Twitter, and I'll just say some of the suggestions we got for this. So um, Claire mentions Agnes Grey, of course. Um, yes. And, and, and you know, a, a dull but very nice <laughs> a curate in that, isn't he? Yes. Um, she also mentions the Baptist books and Under the Rainbow by Susan Scarlett, the, which was the pen oh. name for Noel Stratfeld, or I've her name her. 
I haven't read that one, or indeed anything that she wrote under that pen name. Have you, have you no, read I any have... of her? I don't know if there's any notable difference between her Susan Scarlet books and her Noel Stratford books. No, I don't. I don't know why she decided to have a different name for those either. No, I'm intrigued. I've got one somewhere. Something about pegs. Nine pegs. I don't know. I'll look it up later. Kara <laughs> um, suggests uh, The Clergyman in A Room with a View by E.M. Forster. Uh, apparently oh. he's the reason that Lucy and Charlotte stay on at the pension, but um, I don't remember, Mr. Beeve. No, it's been so long since I read it. Uh, Sue also recommends The, the Breakfast Daughter by F.M. Mary, as you mentioned. And there we go, that's it. Oh, my mum emailed. Let's see, what, what did mum say? I accused mm-hmm. her of just covering them from Google and she was very cross with me because she did. <laughs> <laughs> um, she said, and she should know as a vicar's wife, um, Oscar and Lucinda by Peter Carey. I've not read that. Oh, yes, it's been years since I've read that, but that was a wonderful book. So who's the, who's the clergyman in that? Oscar? <laughs> Oscar, yes. And he has this very kind of long-winded relationship with Lucinda, and it's all very, I mean, it's a long time ago. It's set in um, Australia in the kind of 19th century. It's sort of very kind of pioneering Australia, you know. Hmm. Okay. That'd be interesting to read, yeah, read about mm-hmm. Australian clergy. Uh, she also mentions Gilead, uh, Batteries mm-hmm. of Towers, they're coming up a lot, um, and Tess of the Durbervilles. Tess of the Durbervilles? Who's the clergyman in Tess of the Durbervilles? I can't think. It's been so long since I've read it. Well, I certainly... Well, I don't think Angel is. I don't think um, Thingy Durbeville is. Hmm. No, I don't know. Um, You have to get in touch. Um, (laughs) I've not read The Pastor's Wife by Elizabeth von Arnim. Have you read that one? Oh, I don't know. I think I might have done, actually. I've (laughs) I've got it, but whether I've read it or not, I don't know. Yes, I've definitely got it. And I've read a lot of her novels, but not that one. I mean, hmm. look at my book. Have I read you? <laughs> People come to us for this, you know, quick no. bit of expertise. Can't um, even remember what we've read. No, <laughs> I haven't read that, but I know it exists, yes. I can't think of any other clergyman in her novels, though. No. Um, rattles through brain. No, I can't either. No. Um, so it seems like they're, they're divided into... Perhaps the older books just treat, don't really question the role of the clergy. They're more just about, mm. they're using the fact that they would know a lot of people in the community and have that sort of, not power, central but you know, but yeah, central yeah. role. Um, and then you get the ones more recently, which are just, which are either quite critical of the role or, or at least use it as a way of discussing faith. Yes. And then you, in, perhaps in between are the ones <laughs> where the, I can't think of any 30s, 40s, 50s books where the vicar is, the main character, I'm sure there are some, but um, it seems more like just part of the novel than... Yeah. There, we've delineated all of recent literary history as regards yeah. the clergy. Yeah. Um, did you have any more uh, books to mention? No, I'm just trying to think of scientists now. I mean, yes, please. the obvious sort of scientist books, I suppose, we think of Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Um there are also scientists in sensation novels quite often. So I think Woman in White, there's a scientist, the scientist, um, doctor, whatever his name is. Um, there's a lot of psycho, psychotherapists and things like that as well mm. in late uh, 19th century fiction. Um, people who are, and there's just so many people dabbling in science, people who are interested in science. Certainly, like, I've met, I can't think of any specific uh, Trollope novels, but I'm sure I've read something, someone in a Trollope novel was interested in science. And um, 
women are interested in science in novels as well, like looking at botany books and things. Um, it's certainly, I can't think of any recent novels I've read. I've I can not think read of Remarkable what, Creatures by Tracy Trevelyan, but that's all I've about. I've just read that, yes. Yeah. Do you want to t- say what it's about? Yeah, well, it's about um, Mary Anning, who was a fossil finder and collector in the early to mid-19th century. She lived in Lyme Regis, which, for those of you who aren't English, um, there is it's a beach in Devon, which is where... Uh, Dorset. Dorset. Is it Dorset? Yeah, is it on the border? Maybe, but it's in Dorset. Well, I think it's in Dorset. Dorset. No, I think you're right. I think it is Lyme. I, I, I think I've been to Charmouth, which is next door, and that's in Devon, but I think... You're right, it's in Dorset. <laughs> I'm just Googling it. Um, apologies Lime to Regis. people from Dorset. It is in Dorset, um, yes. So, <laughs> yes, Dorset. So, Lime has got one of the most uh, rich... Um, it did have, I don't know if it still has now, whether they've all gone, been picked out, but it's got one of the richest um, rock faces with fossils in, in the country, basically. And so, Mary Anning found a few, quite a lot of... Um, fossils there that were for the first time so she discovered uh plesiosaurs and i'm gonna i can't pronounce them ichthyosaurs i have no idea (laughs) um basically a lot of 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 stuff that she was found there for the first time and but she wasn't a professional she was just a poor girl really who um happened to her father had a shop selling ammonites and things to tourists so that's how she got into it and um the book is all about her relationship with another woman who's also a fossil collector and the men who the famous geologist of the day who kind of used mary anning's findings um and didn't acknowledge her for what she'd found and how she's basically been written out of history which is really interesting i didn't i think the book was the best written in the world um but i enjoyed the story um and it was really really interesting actually to look at it from the perspective of there were lots of women involved in certainly the natural sciences in the 19th century but they weren't ever given any recognition because the royal society that published published all of the papers and publicized science didn't admit women so Mm-hmm. you had found anything you weren't allowed to write a paper or talk about it you would have had to use a man to to distribute your findings for you and it's only really recently that mary anning has been credited with all the stuff that she found interesting so yeah i think i read a bit about it in olivia lang's book to the river which walks along the river in lewis and she talks a bit about the history of um dinosaur discovery and stuff um mm. Fascinating history, Simon. Well, I, I enjoyed the short verse, but I think that might be as much as I'm willing to read. <laughs> um, but when I was writing down um, scientists, I, I, I suddenly came up with fewer, and I think that's probably because you don't—I mean, you don't have your friendly village scientist just to be no. in the background of a novel in the way that a vicar might. But um, I wrote a chapter of my uh, defil on. Um, animals turning in so humans turning into animals and bestiality and that sort of area but there was also some sections on uh trying, people who were trying to um learn more about chimps and monkeys um so there was scientists in apis and virginia virginia by g trevelyan um and i've recently read hackenfeller's ape by bridget brophy which looks at a similar sort of thing a bit later so those, those sorts of links to darwinism i guess was were continuing into the early 20th century in terms of being a topic for um, popular culture, I guess. Um, Particularly, uh, at that time also, of course, there were lots of uh, psychoanalysts in novels. Um, 
another section of my thesis, which wasn't about science, was um, about popular uh, the ways that people in popular culture received Freudianism. Um, so there's quite a lot about people just talking about it with their friends, but sometimes they'll go and see a psychoanalyst. And in Rose McCauley's Dangerous Ages, it's a very funny sequence um, where, yeah, where someone is basically just want she, a character who loves talking about herself but no one will listen decides to go to a psychoanalyst because <laughs> that way someone's being paid to listen to her talk about herself <laughs> um but looking at different types of science i think there's always there's, there's often a scientist um, or chemist in a agatha christie novel who's there to be like a red herring because there'll, there'll be someone who knows a lot about poison but it turns mm. out it wasn't them because <laughs> it's never the obvious person of course um but I can't think of any novels that I've read where the scientist, apart from Frankenstein, where the scientist is the main character. No, I'm struggling to kind of come up with it. I mean, there's lots where there's lots of 19th century novels where there are people in the novel who are scientists or interested in science. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't think of anything that I've read. And I suppose, um, apart from Frankenstein, where there's a main character, and I'm wondering whether that's because if I read a book that a blurb for a book that said this is about scientists, blah blah blah, I would probably be like, oh, not for me. I'm. I was going to say, yeah, that. it's probably in some ways confirmation bias because I would be much more likely to pick up a book about a vicar than one about a scientist. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's. I think for a lot of people, you read about the you read the word scientist, and I certainly for me, I would instantly think, oh, I'm not going to understand it, or I'm not going to be able to appreciate it because it's not within my field of of knowledge. I mean, certainly I know a bit about most sciences. I have to do them at school, but I wouldn't want to read a book about somebody who was working in a lab or something like that because I wouldn't. It wouldn't take in probably be part of the, the I just wouldn't be the type of novel I'd be interested in I'm interested mm, in communities mm. and people and um I wouldn't want to know about I mean it's not that I'm not interested in it but I just wouldn't be interested in reading a book about someone's scientific experiments or dabbling about you know trying to find a cure for something it just it wouldn't necessarily be something that I would find naturally interesting yeah and so like in non-fiction the only science I tend to read is neurology so and basically Oliver Sacks as I probably mentioned mm. before I love his books um and that's probably more because of the way he writes and because of what a nice person he seems to have been um as as well as you know quirky and interesting um case studies I guess but I can't yeah I can't think that I would rush to a novel about neurology or perhaps, and perhaps generally the people, sort of people who want to read about science probably want to read non-fiction science. <laughs> I don't know. But um, we've had some suggestions on Twitter. Um, Claire says, for life scientists, uh, Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. Hmm. Ah, Is it? I haven't <laughs> read Wives and Daughters. I have. I don't remember anything about it. Um, and The Morning Gift by Eva Ibbotson, which I've not read. No. I know in Middlemarch there's a scientist, but I can't remember the specifics. Ophelia mentions Middle March. <laughs> oh no, that's Vickers. Of course it is. <laughs> um, but there you go. It's a double whammy. She does mention diving, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly by Jean Dominique Bobby. Yeah. Um, which I again I've read, but it, it's about a, well, it's non-fiction. It's a man who has locked-in syndrome. I don't remember him being a scientist. No, I think. What's probably a barrier for a lot of novelists is that you don't often come across people who are um, science and literature tend to be on the opposite sides of a spectrum, don't they? And I suppose yeah, if you're and in, sciences and arts are always considered differently, different academic yeah. disciplines, aren't they? 
Absolutely. So I'm wondering whether people who are novelists and writing, you know, writing novels, would they know enough? Maybe a lot of novelists might feel they don't know enough about science, mm-hmm. or science, the life of a scientist, to be able to write it. Whereas I suppose with a vicar or clergyman, you can feel like you can sort of imagine more of that, or you've been more likely to have experienced you know, going to church or knowing somebody who did that, whereas certainly in older fiction, I mean, everybody would have known what it was to be a vicar. They would have known what the vicar's job involved. You could just take a guess at that, whereas certainly in the 19th century with science becoming sort of an emerging field, you wouldn't necessarily know the specifics unless you, you'd you had some knowledge yourself, you'd had some training or you knew somebody. Um, and there's lots of, it's interesting, there's lots of novels about medical doctors, obviously, but not so much scientists. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Yeah, so my mum also raises um, the H.G. Wells, like Island of Doctor yes. Moreau and The Invisible Man, which are two of his books I've not read. But um, it seems obviously there's the whole realm of science fiction that we're not going to touch mm. on. I think possibly too much lore into itself to consider in this discussion because that would yeah. just take us too far away. But um, I guess H.G. Wells is early science fiction, maybe on the fringe, more like a. Well, yeah. when he was writing it, science fiction didn't really exist did it, as a term. So, no. um, so I don't, he's not writing genre fiction in any intentional way. But um, I think it is interesting that obviously scientists are very much grounded in the discovering more about the truth and you know prat- practical applications of that, etc. And yet it's starting with H.G. Wells and always um, creating these worlds that are not about the truth that are about hypothetical worlds that's quite it seems to me a world of difference between the island dr moreau and actually a novel about a chemist for example yeah which is intriguing science fiction not that sciencey <laughs> and it's interesting isn't it because i think a lot of people that you know i know i think of science fiction and i just think oh no not for me and i know margaret atwood has had a big debate for a long time about people calling some of her novels science fiction and she's mm-hmm. been there you know they're not science fiction and you know why don't we why doesn't she want to define them as science fiction what's wrong with science fiction and yeah like why is it called science fiction anyway is it to do with um it's is, is it necessarily to do with science or is it to do with the fact that it's to do with you know possible future inventions well i think it's connected to i mean separate from fantasy in the sense that um it's hypothetically possible in the future, I think is where, perhaps right. where, where it comes from. Like, I suggest, although I think the line can get quite blurred. Although neither of us are science fiction experts, so we're no, potentially we entirely know. wrong. <laughs> no. um, do let us know if you are an expert. Um, my favourite yeah. suggestion came from my friends Kirsty and Paul when we were talking about it the other day, who came up with Uncle Quentin from The Famous Five, who I believe is indeed a scientist. <laughs> Um, and in fact, yes, there is that sort of absent-minded professor type. Yeah, there is. There's lots of absent-minded professors, actually, now I come to think of it. And what I love the best about The Famous Five is that, that every time they're left alone, it's because Uncle Quentin has to go to a conference. <laughs> and, and he can't go on his own. He's um, to blame for all the kidnappings. He is. And obviously, because he is an absent-minded scientist, his wife has to go with him. Um, <laughs> and therefore... The children are left to their own devices and I think there is it's quite interesting actually uh, I think a, a nice connection sometimes between the vicar and the scientist is that quite often I find in fiction the vicar is depicted as somebody who's a little bit needs his alone time yeah, yeah. um is often a little slightly eccentric 
um, finds social interaction quite difficult, ironic considering his role. Um, mm-hmm. And there is that sense of um, them being set apart in some way. Yeah, and the, and, so, and they often are both absent-minded figures, or yeah, as you say, they are set apart and um, not expected to engage in society in the way that you know, some a banker or a teacher or something might. Um, mm. it, and 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 a role that defines them outside of work as well as during you know in working hours, if such a thing exists for <laughs> for either of them. Yeah, exactly. They're sort of they're constantly immersed in what they do. Um, their their job defines them, and I think that's something that's quite interesting as a, and perhaps that's also why depicting a scientist is quite a daunting task because if somebody's always thinking about and doing science, you're going to have to know quite a lot about what sciences that they're doing in order to depict yes, them. Yes, true, true. <laughs> it's a bit of a scary prospect. So, let's um, come to decision making. Do you have a preference um, between the two? Well, in terms of if I was browsing in a bookshop and looking at some blurbs, I think I'd be far more likely to pick up a book about clergyman than a scientist. However, my recent dabblings in uh, science history have made me more open to it. But I think I would definitely, yeah, I mean, I'm more interested in the clergyman than, but just because of their central role in the community. I like that element that they're always, they're kind of the social worker, which I find interesting. Yeah. Um and yes, I'm the same partly because of a lack of knowledge about science. Um, partly because growing up in a vicarage, um, I'm always interested to see uh, mm. how other writers, whether or not they themselves grew up in a vicarage, how they interpret that. Because it's so different from growing up in a house where your house is your your home and it's you know off limits to other people because it is basically, to at least an extent, public property. Um, people are always coming in and out, and it's. So yeah, if, if it, it's always interesting for me to see um, how, firstly, you feel have done it well, and secondly, um, if the, their, the experience of the characters is, par- is parallel with mine. Um, so yeah. basically, I'm just very self-involved. So that's why I really <laughs> prefer books about Vickers. <laughs> <laughs> um, There's no harm in that. <laughs> well, there are no Vickers or scientists in the books that we are <laughs> um, discussing today. Um, that may be the only thing they have in common. So but let's talk about um, yeah. As It Was by Helen Thomas and First at the Win for France by H.E. Bates. Um, shall I introduce As It Was since I've just reread it? Are you happy yeah. to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's a book that was given to me by my friend Phoebe, or perhaps recommended. I really should remember if people <laughs> give me books or just tell me about them. But she thought it'd be up my street and I read it. I think about 10 years ago. Um, it's by Helen Thomas, but it was originally published just as HT, and the copy that I've got just has HT. Um, she was the wife of Edward Thomas, uh, the war poet, and um, it's basically a, an account of their life together, albeit under the assumed names David and Jenny. Um, it, there was a sequel, World Without End, that um, is also lovely and is much um, more about their marriage and about uh, his going to war but as it was is quite a simple tale uh, it's very short only 120 pages i think in my edition um basically about her coming to know him as a as a 17 year old and he was also 17 um and they're falling in love and it ends with the birth of their child 
Um, so in terms of plot, there's very little. It's just a very simple tale told about falling in love in Oxford, um, getting, escaping the home that she found oppressive, discussing how, how she, what she thinks about marriage, but whether or not they should get married, what she, um, but mostly just about him and their, and their love for each other. Um, yeah, you go with, uh, H.E. Bates. So first is the Bin for France's fiction, um, and it's set during World War Two, and it was actually written during World War Two, which um, I loved when I read it because when H. E. Bates was writing it, he still didn't know the outcome of the war. Um, and it's about a pilot called John Franklin who is always um, flying between. He his job is to drop off people who are going into occupied territory and then sort of fly them back, etc. And um, one on one mission his plane something goes wrong with his plane and they're forced to land in a field and during the landing he hurts himself he hurts his arm really badly and they manage to kind of him and his crew they're all fine no one dies they all get to a farmhouse and there's a french family there who have been pretty badly treated by the germans and they are willing to help them out to hide them away until they can manage to get away but unfortunately john's injuries are worse than he thought and he takes him a really long time to recover and his crew are forced to kind of leave without him to try and make their way back to england um and the story is all about how he gradually starts to fall in love with the girl um, of the family who's looking after him and it's it, he's kind of loves her but he knows he needs to get back to England and then he has to sort of try and escape and it's just it's really really good it's really exciting and adventurous um, but also a really interesting depiction of um, war-torn France that again is something that I'd never really read before I'd, I'd um, looked at this book I hadn't really experienced I think we so many of our books set during World War Two are very British focused, mm-hmm. um, and actually reading about occupied France was was an eye opener for me. Um, and yeah, it's a really, really powerful and tense, very tense book. You're constantly stressed about whether he's, you know, the Germans are going to come and get him. Yeah, I read it. Um, I bought it quite a long time ago after Lynn, who blogs that I prefer reading, mentioned it. Um, she really liked it, and I shortly after that found a copy but didn't read it until last year. Um, and yeah, I agree. I, I think it's... Um, I only knew A.T. Bates as having written Darling, The Darling Birds of May, which I haven't read, but used to watch the TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was obviously a world away from that. And it starts off with this thrilling... Um, the, the tale of the crash. And normally that sort of thing I'm not interested in reading about, you know, battles and, and m- massive emergencies and things. But the way he wrote about... about that immensity is so compelling while mm. also being really character driven I thought it was it really settled me into it thinking this is going to be you know extremely well written and really exciting yeah and I think that's why he does well when I suggested we do these books together it had because I misremembered <laughs> which wars they were talking about <laughs> and and indeed misremembered that um, as it was ends much earlier than I thought it did um, but what they actually do have in common is these these tales of sort of burgeoning uh, romances, I guess. Mm, I was going to say that's the common thread, really, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it's that they're both also quite simplistic writers who mm-hmm. manage to explore really emotionally um, the emotional depths of life, but in a very they're not um, bad writers by any means, but their prose is quite simple. But they manage to paint a picture that is really emotionally engaging and helps you to really feel like you're there and that you're experiencing the things that they're experiencing. Because it's it's Francois, isn't it? The 
the yes. girl in um, Festival in for France. Um, you, she, yeah, she's quite a cipher for much of the book. She's quite, she's very calm. She's very straightforward, mm-hmm. and you can't really work out what she's feeling about John. You're sort of put. It's not in, his, in the first person, but you're sort of put into his perspective yeah. in terms of he's obviously falling for her, and but she's just busy being capable and and, <laughs> and very useful and um, and it is a bit sort of enigmatic in that way. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting as well because it's in the same way we never really know Edward Thomas mm-hmm. from from Helen Thomas's book, and I found it quite interesting when I read it because. Her depiction is very passionate, but there was also a sort of an aggression about it, I felt, as I was reading it, mm-hmm. um, of her real desire to be like, he did love me, he did love me, I want to prove to you that he loved me. Um, and that sense of not being certain um, and feeling like she had to justify herself in a way, you kind of get the same sense in First of the Wind for France, like, does she love him as much as he loves her? And we never really know the balance. Have you read World Without End, the second Helen Thomas book? I haven't, no. See that? I mean, obviously, it's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> but it's <laughs> extremely interesting because it's about their marriage, and he, at one point, has a mistress, and I think he moves the mistress into their house. It's all very different. Like, she still thinks oh. he's wonderful, um, and it ends with him going to war, but she, she idolises him, and the reader is just recoiling, thinking, he's treating you terribly. Whereas, in as it was, it, because it's all before that happened... He is just, he's this very um, artistic, intelligent, sensitive man that um, we're seeing entirely through her eyes. Um, and I don't think she's deliberately masking any of his personality. Um, but we, but she is still, perhaps because their relationship was sadly so brief, she is still very infatuated with him. And she has, she has idolized him maybe, maybe just after he died or maybe the whole time. But it, um, somehow it doesn't feel annoying. <laughs> he does. It does. It, it feels very subjective. But you. Could, but you're sort of recognizing that as you're reading, so you don't. You don't think you're being duped, I guess. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's really interesting her narrative voice actually. And I wonder. But the thing is, I wonder whether I would have picked up on that if I didn't know the actual story. Well, interestingly, I hadn't really factored this in until my copy has. Um, was, my copy is from 1926 when it was first published, and it has um, a few couple reviews in it. Oh. And clearly, it was written as a novel. Like it was published as a novel oh. to start off with. Um, let's see if I just. Um, I bet she's a daughter of a vicar. But um, she, <laughs> the uh, one of them says, let's see. Um, the mind of H.T.'s heroine has a beautiful and touching simplicity, um, as it was the total force of unselfconsciousness. Uh, um, the tale and that was from the Saturday Review at the time the observer wrote the tale is a plain tale without literary tricks yet the precision of the detail suggests emotion deeply felt and honest etc so it seems that they are treating her this heroine not as the author of this I think it must have just been published as a novel and it's only later when she right yeah I don't know if she decided to cease being anonymous during her lifetime or if it only happened afterwards because they've got different names as well haven't they well, this is what confused me first, because she's called Jenny, and he's called David yeah. um, in it. And I thought, why would you call her Jenny? I can understand why you want to be under publishing under HT, but obviously Jenny doesn't mean with eight. And <laughs> it slowly dawned on me that it's meant to be a novel. And I think, as a novel, if it were a novel, rather, it feels like a very different sort of book in some ways. Yeah, I'm not sure it would work for me. 
because in some ways it's maybe too simple for a novel. Mm. Um, because I say that the writing style is extremely simplistic in in a beautiful way, and it does feel quite elegiac, I guess. Yeah. Um, and she writes beautifully about Oxford as well, um, about their sort of time lying in meadows here, and it's and it it gives that impression of that pre-war. Um, I mean, even though it was like 1890, so it was quite a long time pre-war, but the sort of like haze of idyllic life together before, and because yeah. she knows what's coming, it just feels... It, it, the whole thing is sort of, yeah, soaked in that sense of it being a halcyon days. Yeah. Which obviously is the exact opposite um, of First of the Wind for France. Yeah. If, although having said that, you get this sort of weird sense of it being this pastorally beautiful area and, the, you know, simplistic farmhouse life albeit you never know when a Nazi's going to turn up and shoot you. <laughs> so you, he somehow manages to make it seem like, you know, she's very beautiful, the area's very beautiful, mm. the customs of the town and the, and the locals are all quite, in, the, in their own way, beautiful, but you've got that darkness lurking behind every corner. Yeah. And I, I suppose, in a, yeah, in a way, well. yeah. yeah. I mean, it's sort of so many similarities, Simon. Oh my gosh, it's like a perfect <laughs> match. <laughs> Am I convincing myself, or is this actually true? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but it's true, you know, as it was, I think, certainly nowadays, people reading it, you can't read it without the knowledge that it's all going to come crashing down, um, constantly featuring in your reading. Like You can't not mm-hmm. constantly be thinking, gosh, she did not know what was coming. Um, she's deluding herself, etc., um, and with First of the Moon for France, I think what's really interesting is that the people who were reading it at the time didn't know the end of the war. They didn't know what was going to happen, just as he doesn't know the, the main character. And I, I would, um, I think that thinking about how original readers would have read it and how we're reading it is really, uh, must have been a really stressful, much more stressful experience than we are finding it because at least mm-hmm. we can be like, oh, well, you know, it, in the end, um, you know, that's what happened or, you know, we know that that would have, have happened, etc. Whereas, you know, they didn't know and there was no guarantee that he would get back, etc. So I think that sense of understanding that kind of being in medias rest, you have really nicely in both books, because in as it was, you don't know how it's going to carry on. You don't. This idyll seems like it could last mm-hmm. forever because she finishes, I think, just with her uh, at the end. Maybe she just had her first baby. And she's, yeah, yes, very basically the last few pages are her giving yeah. birth. Yeah. And she's, you know, absolutely on cloud nine. It's the, the pinnacle of her life. She's so happy. Um, she's like absolutely in bliss at being a mother. And she, this is everything that she's ever wanted. And she just is so in love and it's wonderful. And then first at the wind for France, you know, you have this moment in the middle of a war where he's just stuck in this house for a few for several weeks really and there is a kind of a sense of routine that comes about and he begins to be part of this family and you can kind of almost forget that mm-hmm. outside is happening because they've formed this lovely little world for themselves as it was it, whether read as a novel or as a memoir is surprisingly open about sex for the 1920s very much so yeah i was quite uh, surprised by that and she's she's very much an advocate of, of not getting married. She's eventually persuaded by her friend or their mutual friend Beatrice that it would be a good idea. Um, and she does document being um, insulted and with a barrage of sort of you know judgment from a friend when who discovers that she's pregnant and not married. Because indeed, by the end of the book, they're still not married. Um, I think I'm right in saying. 
but um but yeah it was surprising yeah i was reading and thinking gosh i was not expecting her to be this open about losing her virginity or um you know down to like where it happened and stuff. so it's not, it's not like graphic or anything but <laughs> but it doesn't skirt around the issue in the way that one might imagine it would no, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think we have this perception that nobody in the 19th century had sex uh, outside of marriage, but obviously most people did. Um, you just need to have a look at your own family tree to figure that out. And dates <laughs> of things. I mean, certainly in my family, everyone was at it. Um, <laughs> so it's, I think, um, yeah, our perception of what Victorian people were like about sex is very different from the reality. And I think re- reading that, I was like, oh, you know, yeah, I'm. I thought, gosh, how daring, but actually not being daring. I mean, I think people must have talked about it. We just don't read about it because we read books mainly written by middle class and upper class people. Yes, and what people were willing to put in print obviously wasn't the same as what was happening. Exactly. Um, Yeah. See, in some ways it seems much more... um, I don't want to use the word decorum, but, you know, a a lot more of the sort of very, very old-fashioned sense of romance in First of the Wind for France, albeit mm-hmm. 20 years later it was written and set 60 years later, um, or 50 years later. Um, partly, I guess, because all her family are, are watching on. But mm-hmm. Quite difficult. It is, yeah, it is this very slow and steady romance of not even words, really, just sort of like unconscious communication for a lot of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's got a language barrier as well between the two. Of course, and think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very... But I think both of them are very beautiful and very sensitive depictions mm, of... Mm. And also how... I mean, I think both... It's quite easy to see from reading the book that Helen and Edward weren't particularly the most compatible of couples. Um, and Certainly by the second book, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and you look at First of the Women for France, these also are two people who perhaps ordinarily wouldn't have come together, but that sense of love being something unpredictable, something that also is quite sudden and kind of elemental in a way. You can't control how you feel. It's just, you know, there's that weird attraction sometimes between people. And I think that depicts that quite well when you just feel like there's no reason why I should be with this person or there's no reason why I should love this person, but I just do. Yeah. Have you read anything else by H.E. Bates? I haven't, no. I probably should, shouldn't I? Well, I haven't either, but um, I've got Love for Lydia somewhere, I think. I always see his books in charity shops and think, oh, I should buy that. Yes, uh, he's quite prolific, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but I just know, again, Darling Buds of May. Um, and I don't know where to start with that, because it's another big series, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, but so, so, I mean, if it's anything like the TV series, so different from, from First of the Wind for France that it does seem like the it has a wide range, <laughs> at the very least. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Um, well, we may have come to decision time. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be a hard one actually because I really it enjoyed taking them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think for me, if this was had included as it was and World Without End, I would probably go for those because um, I think there's a lot. I think the second book is really interesting and quite moving. Well, the end of it, extremely moving, as he leads to war, one of the best written paragraphs I've ever read. Um, but on its own, whilst I love it, I think it sort of doesn't quite stand alone. Uh, yeah, you need, I think you need, you need the context, whereas I think the H.E. Bates works beautifully on its own and, and has a, has everything. It's got, it's got the love. It's got, um, 
the drama. It's got a really interesting um, and unusual uh, aspect of the of the war. So whilst I love them both, I think I'm going to go for first of the one for France. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you, and I think it's it's for the reason that you said. I think that without knowing the story of Helen Thomas and Edward Thomas and understanding about that, I don't think you would get much from the book. I mean, it's a lovely, mo- interesting moment in history, but I don't. I think the quality of the writing and everything, it wouldn't. It's not a classic for me in terms of I would just love to read it anyway. Whereas coupled with the story, I find it really, really interesting. Mm. Um, but first of the win for France, which is a standalone book, not leading to know anything else around it. I think it's fantastic. And it's got everything. It's got action. It's got romance. It's got the historical context. Um, and it's just something that, I mean, and also I'm really good at forgetting the end of books like that. Uh, oh, yeah. So I would be able to quite happily read it again and probably get swept up in it and really stressed again. So still don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. No. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. Okay. Fine. So, yeah. It'll be. I think it's a really, really good book. And if people haven't read it, then you should. And also, it's very. It's not very long. So it's quite a. Quick no. Well, neither of them. You could get get through both of them in a day. I would have thought. Yeah, so. Yeah. They're both slender. Um, and I should say that. Um, the uh, as it was in World of the End are both available together along with some accompanying letters and more context and things in a book called Under Storm's Wing so that's much more easy to find now so I think it's published as by, being by Helen Thomas but it's edited by someone as well um, okay. which I also have because you know I need duplicates clearly <laughs> <laughs> right so we are in perfect agreement this time yeah um, in the next episode, we will be doing... Oh, we actually do our first half. Someone who goes only by the name A, in the comments, very mysterious, uh, suggested doing... Um, do we read one book at a time or many books at once? Um, that m- hopefully won't just be a yes or no answer. We'll be able to <laughs> drag it out a bit more. Um, and we'll also be looking at two novels by Mark and Italaski, both published by Persephone. Um, those are To Bed With Grand Music and The Village. Yes. Great. Um, do, as always, let us know any suggestions you have um, and what you'd pick in these categories. Uh, yeah. You can find all the books and authors we mentioned at stuckinabook.com. Um, do throw in your own clergy and science books in there. And bonus points to anyone who gets a clergyman who is also a scientist. <laughs> there must be some somewhere. <laughs> there must be at least one. Uh, great. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.